Isaiah chapter 62 says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like a brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. Lador Vador, from generation to generation, it seems like not only in Jewish life, but in life in general, everything we learn and teach and do has everything to do with sharing tradition from generation to generation. I said a few minutes ago that unless we tell our children and their children, everything will be forgotten. The traditions will not continue. The teaching will not continue. It's no different for us as Messianic believers. It should be the same. We're taught that we are to love our eternal God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might. And to teach our children to love God as well. That's the Shema. That's what we state. That that's what we do. And that's what we will do. We tell, like we did last week, of the story of the Exodus. And even though satyrs are done differently from congregation to congregation, from home to home, it's it's the same story. The way we do it, the way we tell it, the way we relate it, it doesn't matter as long as the story is remembered and told. And we have the the four questions. So we answer the questions, as it should be for every question our children ask us, as it should be when our family members ask questions. We should have an answer. I'm a firm believer in the fact that appropriate, an appropriate answer to a question can be answered with it, I don't know, but I don't stop there. I don't know, but I will find out and get back to you is the proper way to follow up the I don't know. To make something up, please don't do that. I refuse to make something up. If I'm not sure of something, I will say, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. So that's true, and it has been true for most of you, for generations past and hopefully for generations to come, that the questions will be asked and answered based on our knowledge and our tradition. Some questions will come up about traditions that you don't quite understand. Again, find out what the answer is so that you can give people an appropriate answer. And that, in, as a result, should bring us all closer together. Because then we become in agreement, understanding all the things together, understanding the traditions, understanding the story of the Exodus, understanding the story of the Holocaust. The door of a door. In the Zohar, there's a story that Rav Hia and Rav Josue were traveling in Kurdistan. And they observed the deep ravines in the landscape, and Rabbi Hia said, surely... They must be vestiges of Ma'i Noach, the, literally the, the waters of Noah, the great flood. The question is, why would God leave them there? Why would he leave all these canyons and crevices in the landscape? And as Rabbi Hia thought about it, 
He said, see, generations after generations will see that and remember. He taught that it's so obvious that it's God that it would make, he would make sure that the memories of everyone that does his will would endure. You know, think about the Grand Canyon right next door in Arizona. There's several stories as to how that canyon came about. But one thing about it, I don't care if you want to go with story A, where it's a trickle that went through and gradually wore away and eroded the the ground. Okay, but what started the trickle? I would still maintain that they're created by God's hand. Something he did, something he caused to make that happen. And I will have to be one first one to admit that I have never been to the Grand Canyon, but I've heard of many people that have been and then told me what how beautiful it is just to see that and to think about how God caused the formation of the canyon. So he continues saying, in fact, God ordains that they be remembered here on earth from generation to generation, but also on high. God doesn't forget. We may forget, our children may forget, but he doesn't forget. And if you listen to him and you're attentive to, attentive to his voice, he will remind you. He says, one, uh, one might think that we're supposed to forget all about the not-so-good things that happened during that generation. And after they didn't do God's will. But these two, he thought, we remember from generation to generation. We see the ravines and we remember. In the spirit of uh, Rabbi Hia's teaching is the heart of why a brit milah, circumcision, we sometimes bless the baby or with a twofold blessing, that he will see the wonder of the world and marvel at all the miracles in his life, and that he will also remain open to the pain and ugliness that there is. Let's face it, newborn babies are going to end up being exposed to the pain and the ugliness of this world. It's up to the generation that knows about it and knows about the goodness that came out of it to tell them, or they will never know. To see what he says, to see what we Jews are called upon to bring justice where there is none, to bring food where there are hungry people, to be compassionate and loving even in a world which seems callous and uncaring. As the saying goes, In a place that has lost its humanity, Jews must strive to be human. From generation to generation, Lador Vador, He continues by saying, Jews have seen to it to remember the bad with the good because our mission and purpose as a people is to draw strength from our blessings and to find ways to heal when faced with adversity. It's the same reason that we will commemorate Yom HaShoah. And then next week, which we're going to actually do the celebration the following week, is rejoice with Yom HaAtzmaut, the anniversary of Israel's independence. The strength of generations of the Jewish people has been the ability to share and sweeten the joy in good times and hold themselves closer during and looking back on the bad times. 
like I said, all these things, all the traditions, everything that we do is to draw us closer together. We mourn together. We rejoice together. If we don't, we're not family. That's what family does. It's not just good times. Sometimes there's the bad times. But we persevere. And by the grace of God, we come out victorious. Ecclesiastes 1 begins with another thought. Dor holech v'dorba v'ha'aretz le'olam omadet. One generation passes away and another generation comes. But the earth abides forever. In those opening lines, the question comes up as to what the meaning of life is. What does it have for us? And then he spends the rest of the book attempting to answer that question. We may see that verse as if Kohelet believes there's something significant. That there's nothing that we can do that is of lasting significance. That we as human beings are limited by the fact that we live and then we must die. In contrast, the earth, which is inanimate and not subject to the cyclical nature of life, is the one thing Kohelet observes that is abiding. But we can also see him hinting at something more subtle and not as ironic. Maybe we're supposed to realize in his words that even though we belong to a line of generations and, like everyone before us, we will come and go. But there is ground beneath us, a foundation that will endure. So even though we're temporal, even though we could pass away, this earth is always here. It's eternal. And the generations to come are going to walk on the same ground we did. You can look at that as a physical thing or a spiritual thing. Either way, you set the tone for the generations to come by what you do today and what they see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears. What are you doing? What are you saying? Are you living this, the life? Are you being sincere in what you're saying and what you're teaching? The sense of timelessness that's expressed in the Siddur is really a, a sacred part of our liturgy. And that's from the Kedeshah where we say, Lador Vador, Nagid, Gadlecha. From generation to generation, we declare your greatness. And to all eternity, we will make known your holiness. Your praise shall never depart from our lips. That's what it's all about. It's recognizing who's in charge. It's recognizing who delivers us. It's recognizing who saves us. It's recognizing that he is sovereign over us and that we need him. So all that being said, we should actually strive to make our lives lives connected to everything that's high and holy. In the many ways that, uh, and given the different times and the seasons that we have seen and will encounter in the future, both Jews, Gentiles, Messianic, doesn't matter. We have the ability to touch and experience the enduring the eternal. And that would bind us 
culture together as families. And if this doesn't feel like a family to you, start making it feel like a family. Get connected with one another and make it part of your family. And then we can build our lives as a people and a community. And it gives us a sense of purpose. And it gives us a mission. It gives us direction. So if we can stand together in a, in a great chain of generations, Lador, Bador, Leolam, forever, we have the pleasure of coming together on many more sacred occasions. I mean, how many things we have in the cycle of life? We have births. We have weddings. Yes, we have funerals. But even funerals can bring us closer together with the rest of us as we are mourning together. So we do things in unity as a family. Lador Vador, from generation to generation. And in those ways, we become more community, we become more family, and we can express it. So that that way, Lador Vador, Nagid Gadlecha, we come together from generation to generation and be able to praise God, even in the bad times, but especially in the good times. That's it. That's the message. Now, I'm going to read these two stories. The first one is called, Thou Shall Not Be a Bystander. It was published in Jewish Week uh, last year, almost a full year ago. It was the 25th of April. It was written by Tova Rosenberg, who is the director of the Hebrew Language Department at Yeshiva University High Schools. She says, and I quote, Thou shalt not be a victim. Thou shalt not be an oppressor. But thou shalt never be a bystander. That was She was quoting the distinguished Holocaust scholar and author Yehuda Bauer, who stated to the German Bundestag, in 1998, he even suggested it was time to add these three mandates to the Ten Commandments. Yet, since that speech, a decade and a half ago, human beings continue to watch as others are being oppressed and killed. History is repeating itself. She goes on. In fact, less than 70 years after the end of the darkest chapter in human history, a chapter that so many around the world prayed and vowed never again genocides are occurring in Burma, Dominican Republic of the Congo, Libya, Sudan, South Sudan, Central African Republic, Darfur, and Syria. As Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, is commemorated, we must wonder if there is a way to understand and explain these recurrences reoccurrences, or to watch with bewilderment, inaction, paralysis, and pious proclamations from the leaders across the globe. In the Holocaust's aftermath, the international community responded by adopting conventions and resolutions for the crime of genocide, all in response to the atrocities committed during World War II. Clearly, though, societies around the world must do more than just have political leaders condemn or stand by while innocent people die. 
Reflecting recently on the 20 years since the Rwanda genocide, many scholars and media pundits asked, why hasn't the world learned anything? Perhaps the real question should be, how can we teach our young people not to be bystanders? How can we change the world through our youth? One beacon of hope occurred in 2005 when the UN passed a resolution declaring January 27th the International Day of Commemoration in memory of the victims of the Holocaust. The significance of the resolution as it call for a remembrance of past crimes with the purpose of preventing them in the future. It also provided for a mandate to the UN to educate people about the Holocaust as the paradynamic genocide all over the globe. The resolution passed unanimously. She goes on. In the U.S., however, there are only five states that have mandatory Holocaust education. New Jersey, New York, California, Illinois, and Florida. Now is the time to develop serious academic programs that educate our students about the Holocaust. Studies made on Holocaust education have found that the most meaningful and effective way to educate youth is through one-on-one conversations with survivors. The Holocaust survivors are dying. We don't have much more opportunity to get, those, get with those survivors and speak to them and learn from them. The mere opportunity to hear firsthand testimonies through asking their own questions is profound and transformative. When students will sit across from a victim, they very quickly understand the importance of not being a bystander. She continues, Paul, the real-life hero, not trying his name, from the, in the film Hotel Rwanda, and the man who saved over 1,200 lives during the episode of ethnic cleansing that took place in Rwanda in 1994, recently spoke to students at Yeshiva University High School for boys as a part of the Holocaust oral history film documentary project Names, not numbers. He told the young audience that hatred and intolerance begins with words. He described his experiences during that tragic period, the helplessness of those he sheltered, and his disappointment with the world for failing to intervene. The students attending the session shared with him the lessons that they learned from their interviews of Holocaust survivors and compared his heroism with that of Raoul Wallenberg, the Swedish diplomat in Germany, in Germany, German-occupied Hungary, who led an extensive and successful mission to save the lives of nearly 100,000 Hungarian Jews. She concludes by saying, youth can make a difference in preventing future acts of genocide in the world, wherever they may occur. They can't be inspired by and follow in the footsteps of Monsignors uh, Rosenbanyaga and Wallenberg and the many other valiant individuals who have not only stood up but taken action against intolerance and oppression. The future of the world is in their hands. But this future will not be bright a bright one unless youth are educated, unless they are taught to appreciate and respect differences, 
unless they know how to prevent prejudice and hatred, intolerance and injustice. The first step to mandate Holocaust is to mandate Holocaust and genocide education in the other 45 states. I found it quite sad when she reported that only five states have mandatory Holocaust education. The rest of them teach a little bit about it, but it's not mandatory. It's kind of a side note the teachers might mention. Many textbooks are doing away with any mention of the Holocaust. We need to be the generation that makes sure that that's taught, makes sure that it doesn't happen again. It's from Messianic Rabbi Frank Lowinger. He wrote this piece just this last week entitled, Silence Isn't Golden. Prior to his death, the courageous German churchman Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. He says, To fortify the stranglehold of Germany's anti-Semitic laws, Nazi law called for the death penalty to those found protecting or giving aid to the Jewish people. Reverend Bonhoeffer chose the path of civil disobedience in resistance to these nefarious laws and was summarily hung for his act of bravery. His soul and conscience would give him no peace if he remained silent in the face of such injustice and atrocity. At Parim, we recall the defeat of an ambitious anti-Semite as he sought to perpetuate genocide only to see his designs foiled because one man, Mordecai, recognized the imminent danger and did not remain silent. On Passover, again, we remember another great deliverance from a foe who also sought to destroy us, a foe whose level of evil is epitomized for his wanton slaughter of children two years and younger. Again, one man, Moses, did not remain silent, but made his appeal to the most powerful monarch on earth, let my people go. In the aftermath of these great celebrations, we come face to face with the grim realities of Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance. I have an ominous sense that history is about to repeat itself in a most unkind way. We find ourselves at a critical juncture of history where we are witnessing an increase in worldwide anti-Semitism while the nations, through fear and intimidation, seek to accommodate and kowtow to the wishes of rogue Islamic, radical Islamic states that sponsor terrorism. Where is the will and resolve of decent people to push back this evil? As crazy and as convoluted as this will sound, amidst all the problems in the world, the ever-so-vigilant United Nations has just condemned Israel yet again, forget this, for their mistreatment of women. What of the great, what of the much more serious mistreatment of women that takes place in Islamic or communistic countries? For all of the Yom HaShoah services I have led, attended, or participated in, for all of the great scholarly books, articles, documentaries, and speeches that, I've put, that have been put forward, for all of the great museums that have been established, 
for all of the talk and all of the pronouncements of never again, unfortunately, they're just empty words. Pious-sounding cliches offered with little substance, just part of another tradition to make so-called humanistic, progressive-minded individuals feel good about themselves. Recently, Israeli Prime Minister, Minister Benjamin Netanyahu accepted an invitation to address the United States Congress. This, the leader of the only free and democratic state in the Middle East and the only country in the region affording a right to vote to all Jew, non-Jew, male, and female, yet an arrogant and prideful President Barack Obama, along with Vice President Joe Biden, and Secretary of State John Kerry chose to behave as spoiled children and boycott the speech. Prime Minister Netanyahu was most gracious and respectful, even acknowledging and thanking those who were so rude and belligerent. His single most purpose was to address the highly dangerous threats to the world posed by the Iranian nuclear program. From the land that brought us the Purim narrative comes another regime dedicated to the annihilation and destruction of Israel. And it appears that our country is on a path to enable them to achieve that stated purpose. He goes on. For nearly seven long decades, Iran, Islam, and bordering Arab states made no secret of their intentions to perpetrate genocide against the Jewish people. Yet, world bodies, led now by the United States, continue to coerce Israel into a faulty peace that seriously compromises her security. Have we not learned the lessons of history? Memo. They want to kill us. To, insult, to add insult to injury, President Obama worked feverishly to set the, see the defeat of Prime Minister Netanyahu, setting a precedent by interfering with the elections of a free and democratic state. As bad as that was, it was even more disheartening to hear that, hear and read the incessant vitriol leveled against Prime Minister Netanyahu and Israel's in, in, in general, Israelis in general, for voting in large numbers to retain Prime Minister Netanyahu. The deafening silence, however, extends beyond the church and the nations, but also to the American Jewish community. From two prominent Jewish writers came this. Joe Klein, writing in Time Magazine, said, There will be many in the Muslim world in Europe who will say that the results are no surprise, that Israel has become a harsh, bigoted, tyrant state. For the sake of his own future, Benjamin Netanyahu has made dreadful Jewish history. He is the man who made anti-Arab bigotry an overfactor in Israeli political life. This is beyond tragic. It is shameful and embarrassing. He won because he ran as a bigot. This is a sad reality. A great many Jews have come to regard Arabs as the rest of the world traditionally regarded Jews. That's a Jewish writer. Another one, Harold Meyerson of the Washington Post wrote, Bibi is henceforth the Jewish George Wallace. His success in wooing the fearful and the bigoted to Likud was such that all the other far-right parties saw their results drop from their previous levels. Israel's existence hangs in the balance, 
Is there no concern for welfare and being, well-being of the Jewish state? When Mohammad Reza Nakdi, commander of Iran's Revolutionary Guards, declared, erasing Israel off the map was non-negotiable. Was anyone listening? Does anyone with a sense of compassion and humanity care? Where is the outcry against a foreign policy that's so irrational, insane, and injudicious? For all of society's good intentions, for all of our claim, collective claims for peace and brotherhood, for all those who will clamor for environmental issues, condemn the military and law enforcement agencies, March for gay rights, get bent into a tizzy because Indiana desires to protect and defend our basic American virtue of freedom of religion. Why then is there such silence in the face of an impending genocide against Israel? Is it nothing to you that the lives of multitudes hang in the balance? Where is the outcry against President Obama, Vice President Biden, and Secretary John Kerry? Why do they exert so much time and energy serving as apologists for Islam? And why are they so slow of mind to not recognize who it is that poses the greatest threat to the civilized world? They make Neville Chamberlain look hawkish by comparison. Is it more important to be thought of as open-minded to gain a politically correct approval, or is it better to take a stand on the side of life and found supportive of the foundations of morality established in our sacred writings. Someone has rightly said that if you want to get a, get a conservative angry, lie to him. If you want to anger a progressive liberal, tell him the truth. He goes on saying, during the Nazi era of the 30s and 40s, there was a deadly silence on the part of the church and the nations when the Jewish people were being rounded up for the slaughter. The world knew, but did, not, did nothing to stop the Shoah. The world knew that Hitler was not to be trusted. Yet nations cowered in fear, turned a blind eye and a deaf ear in hoping for the best. Why can't our administration or the media even find the courage to call a terrorist a terrorist? Why can't we find a voice and where and when will a bold leader emerge? Israel's once greatest ally, the United States, led by President Obama, is indifferent and uncaring concerning the fate of Israel. This immoral behavior on the part of our president sends a message to all Israel's enemies. The U.S. doesn't care. Open season. Silence isn't golden. And those who remain silent at this hour cast their vote for the enemies who seek our destruction. He concludes with this. We're getting ever so close to that day when all of the nations will gather against Israel. People of good conscience and respect for life cannot remain silent. May the keeper of Israel be with us and prosper us in all our labors. And as I open with today's message, I'll close with his closing scripture once again, Isaiah chapter 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. Last from Simon Wiesenthal, 
I belong to a tradition that believes that the death of a single child is a blemish on creation. No one can ever convince me that it is possible to kill a million Jewish children and get away with it. No one can ever convince me that it's possible to bring so much destruction to so many families with impunity. I believe that something happened to the world when it was seen, when, when it was seen what was happening to us. Such crimes were perhaps beyond all punishment. The only punishment to fit that crime would be the end of the world. And I don't want that. None of us wants that. We remember because we don't want the world to be punished. It is a redemptive element that goes through our memory. We want to save the world, not only the Jewish world. So today and every day, I hope you'll join with me in saying, we will not forget. So as we close, once again, I am going to, we'll go ahead and recite the benediction, and then I'm going to recite Kaddish. I'm going to actually, as you're leaving, you feel free to come up and place a stone on the headstone. I will be reading the major losses that total up to the nearly 6 million lives that were extinguished. Keep in mind, we always think about and talk about the fact that, you know, one of the greatest things we have going right now disease-wise is cancer. What if one of those six million people would have come up with a cure to cancer? We'll never know because they were taken out, they were extinguished, they were exterminated before they got to live their lives to their fullest, before they got to do whatever God had for them to do because of one man and his goal to get rid of the Jewish people. We can never let that happen again. Again, I read the story about all the other genocides that are going on in the world. So it's continuing. There are those that want to extinguish, exterminate, and do away with certain people. But because we are so closely affiliated, because we are a Messianic congregation, we're more affiliated with the land of Israel, we definitely don't want to see that ever happen again to the Jewish people. Our God and God of our fathers, we just thank you and we bless you because we've heard you. We've heard your voice and we act upon it. We will teach the generations to come of what happened, the atrocities that occurred, not to rejoice in it, but to remember that we will take a stand that it will not happen again with our eyes seeing it. That we will take a stand to act that we will not be silent. That we will always speak against evil no matter where it comes from. Even if it's from our own nation. That we will take a stand that people will not die as a result of genocide. As we open this service today, Lord, we read the psalm that says, we pray for you. The psalmist was saying, you bring the deliverance, that you act against those that would act against your people. There's nothing we can do on our own, Lord. We need you.
We need you to make us strong. We need our voice to speak what you want us to speak. That everyone we come into contact with, especially the next generation, will know and learn and take a stand as well. Thank you, Lord, because you are a God of deliverance. You are a God of peace. But when vengeance is necessary, you do say to us, vengeance is yours. We stand with you as you stand for us. Thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name.